Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. Damon, and this is episode 45, State of the Nation 3, 1689, and Listener's Questions, which I think is probably the longest title yet. Okay, the least said about this coming out on the 28th of July, the better. Uh, I just bit off more than I could chew. In fact, there were more questions than I'd anticipated, and I wanted to research them properly. So that's why there's been a, a short delay. Anyway, here we are, and this week we're taking another break from the chronological narrative and looking instead at how things, at a high level, stood in Russia in the year 1689. And most importantly, why? I'll summarise the key events that have taken place since the last State of the Nation episode, which did a similar thing for the year 1505, and then we'll cover what was going on across the European landscape, paying particular attention to Russia's closest neighbours, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Ottoman Empire and the Kingdom of Sweden. And just a quick side note there regarding the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Some of you will have noticed that sometimes I refer to the Commonwealth as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, other times I just say the Commonwealth, and other times I just say Poland. And there's a simple reason for that glaring inconsistency, laziness because sometimes I just can't find the energy to say repeatedly the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for the umpteenth time in an episode. And so I just say Poland. And I use Poland rather than Lithuania because it was the senior partner. Sorry, Lithuania. Anyway, back to this week's episode, and many thanks to those listeners who responded to my repeated requests. I did come on a bit, didn't I? Most unlike me. The second part of today's show will feature those questions and what a mixed bag we've got, hopefully followed by my answers to those questions. Well, it'd be a bit silly if I just read out your questions and didn't answer them. 
But then, on the other hand, I suppose it would be a lot quicker and easier. So in a nutshell then, part one will be State of the Nation and part two will be your questions. Okay, that's about it in terms of introduction and scope, so let's get stuck in and do some history of Russia. So take yourself back to the 16th of December 2021, when you were probably either thinking about packing up work and getting prepared for the Christmas holidays, if Christmas is important to you, or listening to the latest episode of this podcast. And if you'd gone for the latter, you would have heard me welcome you with a hearty Zdravstvutia, because this was before the invasion, after all, and then go on to introduce State of the Nation 2, which was centred around the year 1505. And you would have heard me say the following, and I quote, and even though I'm quoting myself, this gives me the excuse of reprising out my grave, serious, and some would say statesmanlike quotation voice. Okay, here goes. And so now, in 1505, Moscow stands at the top of the pile. It heads up the Orthodox Church. The appanage system is effectively dead. A large chunk of the land taken by Lithuania is now back in the hands of the Rus. And Ivan's autocratic regime has laid the foundations of the first Russian state. Okay, back to normal now. The Ivan who I've just referred to was Ivan III or Ivan the Great who, if you remember, had ruled initially as the first Grand Prince of Moscow and then Grand Prince of all the Rus for 43 years, during which time he'd put the final nail in the Mongols' coffin at the Ugra River standoff, ending almost a quarter of a century of foreign occupation, massively extended Moscow's territory, particularly in the north, with the effective annexation of Novgorod, pushed the Lithuanians back and established a system of autocratic rule. And so finally, Moscow was in a position to focus on breaking away from the constraints of being a landlocked state and extend its reach into Eastern Europe and who knows, in time, start to experience the benefits of the Age of Discovery and the Renaissance. Except none of that happened. Ivan's son, Vasily III, was more interested in just consolidating his father's legacy. And whilst he made some further territorial gains in the east, he really did little else. And his son, Ivan IV, or Ivan the Awesome Stroke Terrible, spent the early years of his long reign pretty much doing the same. But then Ivan the Terrible did at least make an attempt to establish Russian territory on the Baltic but after initial success, became shackled by the quagmire of the Livonian War, and then, as we know, his mind sort of drifted off to a different place, and I suppose you could say his priorities changed. Then we had Feodor the Bellringer and Boris Gudunov. Feodor wasn't cut out to be a leader, and when Boris took complete charge, his priority was maintaining power as the first non-Rurikid Tsar, rather than territorial expansion, although again, he did try. Then you had the time of troubles. All, all those false Dimitris and the Poles and the Swedes put pay to any further notions of Moscow stroke Russia becoming a major European power. And then Mikhail Romanov and Filaret had to spend most of their time in charge getting things back 
on an even keel. Tsar Alexei at least managed to get on the front foot, but in a fit of hubris bit off more than he could chew by getting embroiled with both the Poles and the Swedes, and a religious schism. Then, of course, the two branches of the Romanov family decided to go through another round of family squabbling. And so here we are in 1689, and you could be forgiven for thinking, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, or the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because Russia, even though it is now much larger with its eastern acquisitions and almost all of Siberia in its grip, is still much in the same boat. But as we know, size isn't everything. Russia still has no year-round warm water port. It's still hemmed in to the west and the north by Sweden and the Commonwealth. Only some of the western and southern parts of the old Rus heartlands are back, back under its sway. The Ottomans still occupy Crimea, and the Renaissance and the Age of Discovery have really had no tangible impacts or benefits. Russia has few friends, and a large percentage of its population are landless serfs. And I don't know about you, but I find the parallels between 1689 and 2022, geopolitically, to be unerringly similar. Well, apart from the serfs and the oil and the gas, and possibly the nuclear weapons, and of course Crimea. So let's look at the reasons why Russia in 1689 is still pretty much similar to Russia as it was in 1505. But before embarking upon the whys and wherefores, I do need to mention that I will be going into some of the specifics in the listeners' questions sections, and so here I will just be outlining things with a very broad brush. Think the type you use to paint a fence or a ceiling, and then we'll do the tricky bits with a smaller brush later on in the episode. Okay, so received wisdom in the West is that the Mongol occupation delayed Russia's development and at the same time made her more oriental in outlook and focus on what could potentially happen out to her east. But whilst the latter was a factor, we've seen in previous episodes that the Mongol yoke, particularly after the initial period, was really never that heavy and actually it could be argued brought more benefits than downsides. So if it wasn't the occupation and its impacts what was it that made Russia so markedly different to the rest of Europe, or appear to be so? Well, religion certainly played a part. The fiercely conservative Russian Orthodox Church did things differently, marched to its own tune, and old believers apart was the, really the only major show in town. Unlike Europe and its numerous denominations and bouts of religious strife during the 16th and 17th centuries, and then politically, as we've seen, Russia had been, was, and probably still is, much more suited and comfortable with an autocratic style of government. But the biggest inhibitors to Russia becoming part of the European club were its geography, the formidable foreign powers to its immediate west, the Commonwealth and Sweden, and its own internal power struggles. I mean, to be fair, the time of troubles wasn't just Russia's fault. But the latest round of inter-family squabbling, the Miloslavskis versus the Narishkins, pretty much had been. And the country had been lucky that whilst the Romanov power struggle had been going on, no foreign state had really taken advantage of the situation, apart from the Ottomans, albeit briefly. 
And as for Russia's unfortunate geographical position, well, I've waxed lyrical and often about this, and probably the best definition on this podcast anyway, was provided way back in episode one, The Caged Bear. But it's not all doom and gloom, really, is it? Tsar Peter is now pretty much at the helm, and as we'll see, his gaze will turn to the West, because he sort of gets the bigger picture. But first, he needs to sort out his own backyard. And we'll come to all of that in the episodes that will follow this one. But just to finish off, let's look at how things are panning out in the rest of Europe. And here I'll be using a brush that's so big and wide. Um, Think of a large yard broom and probably double it. So by 1689, the major Western European powers, England, France, Spain, Portugal and the Netherlands, have all to a varying degree immersed themselves fully in the world of colonisation and empire building. Portugal, followed by Spain, have their collective feet well and truly under the Latin American table, plus they have various colonial outposts in Asia and Africa. Meanwhile, England and France are focusing in on North America and the Caribbean, but are also starting to cast their gaze towards Asia, uh, as are the Dutch. The wars of religion are almost at an end, and global trading and financial systems have been, or are well on the way to being established. In Central Europe, post the Thirty Years' War, things are still dominated by the Habsburg-run Holy Roman Empire, which, strictly speaking, is neither Holy, Roman or an empire. And there's also a Spanish branch of the Habsburgs who run Spain and parts of the Italian peninsula, the southern bits, whilst the Republic of Venice is the main player on the peninsula in the north. Other key global players in 1689 are Tokugawa-run Japan, although it keeps itself very much to itself, Qing or Manchu China, the Mughal Empire in the Indian subcontinent, and the Safavid Empire in Persia. But those last two are, well, they're pretty much on their way out. So that's the big picture where things stand. But what about Russia's three main protagonists? The Ottoman Empire, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and the Kingdom of Sweden. Well, there was a brief period during the 1680s when Russia was officially at peace with all three, but since Moscow signed up to the Holy League in 1686, joining Poland, the Holy Roman Empire and the Venetian Republic, it had embarked on the two failed Crimean campaigns against the Ottomans, leaving the other members of the League to worry about Turkish threats to Central Europe. So Russia and the Commonwealth were therefore allies, but the latter's importance was starting to wane, and during the final part of the 18th century, it would cease to exist altogether. Sweden hasn't featured much in recent episodes, and in the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War, the conflict with Denmark, and then the Polish deluge, it's kind of worn out militarily and economically. However, cometh the hour, cometh the man, in the shape of King Charles XI, although... He was only Charles V, but hey-ho, who had made it his life's work to reorganise and rejuvenate the state. And by 1689, his efforts were ominously starting to bear fruit. So that's the broad look and feel of things in 1689. Russia's in no immediate danger, 
and there's a new regime under the dynamic Peter I, just about to take charge. So, that's very much the State of the Nation piece done, and now it's time to get on to your questions, and again, thanks very much to everyone who made the effort uh, to send those questions in, it really is appreciated. Now, I had two ways of going about this. Either go through each person's questions, or try to sort of link them thematically, and I've gone for the latter, or at least I think I have. And we'll start with listener Ziggy, who, well, it wasn't really a question, it was more a statement. He left a review a few weeks ago. And um, pretty much that statement was around the usage of, of the terms Russia and Russian and how, in his eyes, they wrongly exclusively pertain to Moscow stroke Muscovy, or effectively, Moscow or Russia today has appropriated the terms Russia and Russian for itself. Anyway, let's hear what Ziggy had to say. So, we've reached a point where a clear distinction ought to be made between Russia and Moscow. For the past 300 years, it has been cultural appropriation by Moscow to claim the exclusive rights for all Russians. It's time to recognise and appreciate the rights of other Eastern Slavs. And at the same time, we should call Muscovites by their name. The Ukrainians and the Poles still use the old term Moscow. By the same token, let's talk about the Ruthenians' history, King Danilo, their rights to be called Russians. Okay, so here is what I think. The Rus lands, or Kievan Rus, are seen as the cultural birthplace of the modern-day Belarusian, which effectively means white Russian, Ukrainian and Russian nations. And Ukraine, by the way, was for a long time in Russia uh, called Little Russia. The majority of the inhabitants of each of the three countries are Slavs. They're Eastern Slavs and they all, and all three speak similar related languages. And Russia, because of its sheer size and power, came to dominate the region and, you could argue, still does and therefore appropriated or assimilated the terms Russia and Russian. But I reckon a better way of sort of looking at this or stating this would be to say that Russia, Belarus and Ukraine are all Russian in origin and that Russians, or those that identify as ethnic Russians within modern-day Russia, are Muscovite Russians. I have covered King Danilo in a past episode, didn't go into that much detail, but he has been mentioned, and I've mentioned Ruthania as a separate entity on several occasions, but I guess overall, Ziggy, I get the gist and I agree with the general premise from a historical perspective. Listener Nathan has a similar sort of question, I'll just go straight into it. So Nathan asks, what is a Russian? This is an ambiguous question, so I'll elaborate. Russia is the largest country on earth by territory, so it necessarily encompasses a large number of various ethnic groups, cultures, languages, geographic regions, etc. My question is this, does Russian really exist as a cohesive and independent cultural, ethnic, linguistic group? And Nathan goes on to say that the more he's learned about Russian history, the more it sounds like Russia is just an imperialist city-state drawing on the resources of its vast empire to support the imperial centre, Moscow. 
it seems that the more appropriate endonym would be Muscovite rather than Russian. This concept is put into stark relief when one analyzes the makeup of the Russian stroke Soviet military over the last century. My understanding is that many of the conscripted Russian Soviet soldiers are stroke were not ethnic Russians and a large number of them can't stroke couldn't even speak, write or read the Russian language before joining the, the military. Not sure I agree with all of that, but Nathan does say feel free to correct these statements if my underlying assertions are incorrect, and I'll come on to that. I guess what I'm trying to get at is to understand exactly what Russia means as an identity. So here's what I think. I think that the term Russian can mean a number of different things. I guess if you live in Russia and have a Russian passport, then at one level you are Russian, even though ethnically, stroke culturally, stroke linguistically, you belong to one of the almost 200 different ethnicities stroke cultures that inhabit the country. And certainly most of those groups will speak Russian either as a first or a second language. Equally, some Belarusians and Ukrainians consider themselves as Russian or Russian, along with the many millions who live in other countries of the world, particularly those of the former Soviet Union. So your Estonia's, Latvia's, Lithuania's, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan and the Stans. But in Russia itself, around 80% of the population either see themselves or are seen to be ethnic Russians. I'm not sure about the situation in the army, Nathan. I have heard about some of the foreign elements, i.e. Chechens, who probably do speak Russians, and Syrians and other uh, Arab groups who probably don't, and that those groups tend to get the blame for the worst atrocities from both sides. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Finally, guess, I guess what constitutes a Russian identity is shared culture, language, ethnic background, religion, to a point, and that myriad of intangibles that make a particular person or group of people feel Russian or identify as Russian or Chinese or American or Brazilian. Nathan then has a second question. So building off the last question, is there a scholarly consensus of, a consensus of whether the Russian language stroke culture is more Slavic or more Scandinavian? Nathan goes on to say that his general understanding of the history of what is today the Russian nation state is that it was originally a collection of city-states with Scandinavian elites ruling over a predominantly Slavic population, referring to Muscovy and Novgorod primarily here. Obviously, modern Russia, and really the Russian Empire since the 18th century, encompasses 
many more ethnic stroke linguistic groups than Russians, but within that core ethnic Russian population, would they linguistically and culturally identify more with Scandinavians or other Slavic Eastern Europeans? I think the easy answer is probably that modern Russia is linguistically and culturally Slavic, but I'm guessing, but I guess I'm looking for what degree of similarity, if any, might remain with the nation's Scandinavian roots. Okay, so Nathan, there is general and scholarly consensus that ethnically and linguistically, modern-day Ukraine, Belarus and Russia are Slavic rather than Scandinavian, I guess like you uh, have observed, or a mixture of the two, and that Russians or Russians identify a lot more with other Slavic groups than they do with the Scandinavians, both now and throughout most of their history. Interestingly enough, though, where scholastic opinion differs is to how the Rus state came into being with one group, the so-called Normanists, generally accepting the traditional view, i.e. the more advanced Scandinavians colonised the Slavic and Finnic tribes, living in what came to be known as the Rus lands, later Kievan Rus, set themselves up as rulers or were invited to, and then gradually, over time, were subsumed into the Slavic population. The second group, or the anti-Normanists, have a different view, i.e. a Slavic proto-state was already in existence, and both groups, the Slavs and the Scandinavians, were on an equal footing and rubbed along together before Slavic influence and culture became dominant. So up to now I've tended to favour the Normanist view, but I'm, I'm not so sure now. I think I'm becoming an anti-Normanist, which is words I thought I'd never say. Um, but no one knows. Uh, it's the being invited in bit that, that gets me. It's shrouded in mystery and I'm really not sure that happened. Could have done, I'm not sure. Either way, the Scandinavians were definitely there. The archaeology is testament to that. We just don't know how many there were or to what degree they dominated the early Rus state. But again, the answer to the question is the Russians of today identify much, much more with their Slavic neighbours than they do uh, the Scandinavian states. Question number three is from listener Nupur. I've heard, I've, I, I hope I've pronounced that right, Nupur. Um, Nupur says, um, podcast is great, love the length of the episodes and how you explain everything. Is a transcript of your episodes available? With so many names, places and numbers involved, it is sometimes difficult to grasp. It would be great to read the transcript and get the gist of what happened in each episode. Thanks. Well, that's a really good point, And this is something that I've thought about doing, uh, as I agree, it really would be useful. But at this point in time, I, I just don't have the time to do that. Plus, I'd have to go back over all of the episodes and provide transcripts for all of them, rather than starting somewhere in the middle. I guess that's what I really try and do with the State of the Nation episodes, and perhaps I could do those, more of those. Um, but you're going to have to leave this one with me, Nupur. I'm going to give it some more thought, and I'll come back to you. Okay, I'm going to lighten the mood somewhat now with a couple of questions from... Listener Prometheus, I'm not sure Prometheus thought these questions would make this episode, but I've included them anyway because they made me laugh. So Prometheus's first question is, maybe Yaroslav's body is in Chicago's Ukrainian village. Well, 
Yes, um, Prometheus's question relates back to Yaroslav the Wise, who died in 1054, uh, yeah, 1054, and the subsequent discovery in 2009 that his body had disappeared from the sarcophagus, with some believing that Yaroslav's remains had been stolen and transported to the USA during the Soviet era. We don't know. I don't know, Prometheus, if Yaroslav is in Chicago, but if you're ever up that way, you could ask around and let me know. And then question number two from Prometheus is, have you read Catherine the Great's memoirs? I read a portion and it was fascinating, but it was clearly incomplete, uh, the volume I got from the library. Do you know of other portions that are out there? Well, I've looked into this and as I understand it, there is only the one volume of Catherine's diaries or memoirs. But hopefully when this podcast gets to her reign, I'll know more and then hopefully so will you. I'm actually quite looking to covering Catherine the Great because television programmes, books, I mean, there's been so many and there is a degree of tosh written about her, um, which I look forward to setting the record straight. Sounds a bit big-headed, but I think you know what I mean. Okay, then we have a question from listener Stephen, uh, who asks, I'm not sure of the extent of Russia at the accession of Peter the Great, i.e. where the borders were. Can you give us a summary, please? In particular, I'd like to know more about the eastern boundaries and the states bordering Russia in the east. I have gathered that there were border disputes with China, but were there wars? Presumably the present Stan states to the south of Siberia didn't exist, were they still held by the Mongols? And then there's a a follow-up. I also do not really understand how Siberia became part of Russia. Did Russia, or at least the Tsars, show any active interest in the struggles occurring in Europe away from their immediate borders? For example, the civil wars in Britain or the Thirty Years' War? So it's sort of a three-in-one question, really. So, first things first, I've discovered a great map of the world for the year 1700, uh, which I've put up on the website, historyofrussia.net, and let me talk you through that. So, in 1689, or there or thereabouts, if you look at the map and you'll see to the sort of northwest, you've got Sweden, then to the west, you've got Poland, Lithuania, and then to the south, you've got the Ottoman Empire. Then there's a little bit of, well, it's not really a border because it shows a sort of a white streak between Russia and Safavid Persia. And then right over to the east, you've got the Qing Chinese Empire. But in between, and I've started referring to these, well, I don't know if you could call them countries or territories, perhaps, as a sort of in-between territories. So in between... Persia and China, we have various people. So we have the Kalmuks, the Kazakhs, uh, the Kiva, and the main group who are the Zungars or the Zungars. So the Zungar Khanate and the Bukhara Khanate were both Mongol. The Kazakhs were Mongol stroke Turkic. So basically the answer to that question is The eastern lands, if they're not dominated by the Persia or China, or the territories of Persia and China, are dominated by a mixture of Turkic, Mongol ethnic groups, and the main one is the Dzungar Khanate, 
Take a look at the map. It's really interesting, not just from a Russian perspective. There hadn't been any wars with China. And the in-between states, uh, as I've just said, were ruled by descendants of the Mongols and Turkic-speaking tribes. The question about Siberia, uh, Stephen, is that it came, became part of Russia gradually. And in the, in the main, by the need to, well, first of all, to remove the threat of invasion from the east and the lucrative trade in, mainly in furs. Plus, of course, Russia couldn't expand westwards or to the south. And another big reason is that most of Siberia, climatically uh, and you know, just where it's situated, no one else really wanted it. Moscow was aware of what was going on to its, its west through the reports from foreign diplomats that were either based on visiting the capital and would have analysed that information, particularly if it had impacted any of its neighbours. Thirty Years' War obviously involved Sweden, for example. And then finally, Tsar Alexei was aware that the English Parliament had executed King Charles I in 1649 because he broke off diplomatic relations and chucked out the English merchants. Okay, now we come to listener Eric. Uh, Eric um, is curious about how the country is governed, particularly in the outer territories. So Siberia and, and the other um, parts that have been occupied by Russia since sort of 1505. Specifically, was there any local control or any kind of where the regions governed by Russian Slavs? I guess that would pertain to the areas in the east mostly. Hopefully this question makes sense as I feel I've confused myself. Thanks in advance and keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Eric. And I think I actually butchered reading that question out. Anyway, the answer is um, in 1689, Russia was divided into 13 of what were called Razriads or geographical units. So, for example, you had Moscow Razriad, Vladimir Razriad, Novgorod, Kazan, Smolensk, Ryazan, uh, and a few others. And each of those, whether they were inner or outer territories, was governed by a military governor. And each of those governors reported into the Razriad Prikaz, or the ministry in Moscow, which in turn reported into the Boyar Duma, which, as we know, is occupied by Boyars and Okonichi. So Moscow governed the outer territories in much the same way as the more established parts of the state. But bear in mind that the outer territories were much larger. And anyway, under Peter, this will all be reorganised. And so I'll cover that in the next few weeks. Then we come to listener Matthias, who really went to town with a number of questions. Uh, there's certainly more than, well, around about 10, I think. So I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. Matthias. Matthias states that he really liked the map from 1054 and how you use one episode to go through all of the provinces back then and thereafter use the same names in the following episodes so that I could go back up to the map and follow along. Could you upload an updated map from the time period you are covering now so that we can compare the two time periods? Unfortunately, Matthias, I've looked and looked and looked and I can't. But I can talk through the map as it stood then in 1054 and try and answer your subsequent questions. So, sub-question number one, are there any provinces that were never occupied and have been Russian or Russian all the way since the 800s? 
No, they were all occupied, although Halich, Volin and Novgorod weren't as occupied as the others and they tended to escape the worst. Question number two, are there maps showing the Mongol invasion of the same territory? There are generic maps, but I don't find them particularly useful, Matthias. But I, I will keep looking and post anything I find on the website. And finally, question... Well, not finally. Uh, question number three. Don't know why I said finally. There is... Today, there is a stripe over Crimea, Donbass and Luhansk. What areas are these in in the map from 1054. So what Matthias is talking about is the current ongoing situation in the war between Russia and Ukraine or the Russian invasion. There's a lot of talk about uh, in currently about um, Donetsk and Luhansk and the greater area be called, being called the Donbass. So Matthias, if, if you look at the map of 1054, Luhansk and Donetsk are outside. They were, they were never Rus lands. So if you go up to the Sea of Azov and sort of go northwards from there, first of all, you've got Donetsk and then just above it, Luhansk. So they sat outside of Rus territory. Question number four. I've heard that there is partly religious conviction or a, partly a religious conviction that Ukraine and Belarus, uh, today's land area, are included in the Holy Rus land or something. Well, I, I've sort of covered this. It was the Rus lands. I'm not really sure it's right to call it the Holy Rus lands. And that somehow the Kremlin is using the Orthodox Church when talking about this land as a way of using the power of the church to fit their agenda. Looking at the map from 1054, I can see that the land area of Ukraine and Belarus was part of Russia back then. Can you comment on this if you have historic or more recent insights into this? Either way, it looks like Russia wants the land back and that whether we like it or not does have some deep roots in these areas. I think the reasons are partly religious, but they're, they're mainly political I mean, it, it, and historical as to why Russia wants its old Rus heartlands back under its control. But whether it will get them, of course, is another matter. I think it will get some of them. Besides the areas mentioned, what is the larger territorial change on the west side of the 1054 map up until today, or up until the time of Peter the Great? So very briefly, Halic, Volin and parts of Kiev province, which were under the control of Commonwealth, or the Commonwealth and now under the control of the Ottomans, but will eventually be under Moscow's control, and Polotsk and parts of Smolensk principality are still in the Commonwealth. So we're moving away from the maps now. We actually come to some very interesting questions. Well, I thought they were anyway. Uh, so many of the historic events that you are describing are, as you often repeat, uncertain. Whether or not they happened at all or as the sources describe. If you could choose one or two of these events where you could be transported back in time and find out exactly what happened, what event would that be and why? Well, several come to mind, Matthias. There's the whole, as I've mentioned before, the founding of Kievan Rus and what part the Vikings stroke Varangians played. I'd also like to know whether Igor did die from that snake bite and a little bit later, how Olga managed to get rid of the Drevlians. Um, that all sounded a bit fanciful. Um, so I'd like to know what really happened in those three situations. I'd also really like to know what happened to Ivan the Terrible's youngest son, you know, Dmitri, the one that Boris Gudunov was either involved or not involved in. I'd also quite like to understand Ivan the Terrible's state of mind 
and attend one of Alexei's council meetings. I think that would be fun. Matthias's eighth question is, as I've mentioned, Putin has compared himself to Peter the Great. What do you think that means for the upcoming future in the war? Blimey, where to start? I think I'm going to duck out of this one and defer it until my conclusion of Peter's time in charge. So in about five or six episodes time, but at this point in time, I don't think you make a comparison like that unless you intend to see things through. But again, whether it's possible, I just don't know. I'm increasingly thinking that the only way Putin will stop is if he is appeased by the West, which I think is likely. He dies, which is obviously going to happen at some point, but I don't know when, or is defeated, which is a maybe, but probably unlikely. Matthias then asks, if you had to live somewhere in Russia and could choose when in history that would be, without the possibility to get back to our time period, where and when would you go and where and when would you avoid and why? So again, as mentioned, I'd like to go back to mid-800s Kiev or Novgorod to try and find out how the first Rus state was formed. I'd also really like to get to see Constantinople. Or I could always go back to Theodore III's reign and, and try and get him to eat more vegetables. Or just before the Mongol invasion and try and get the Rus leaders to take things seriously. And in the more modern age, do the same thing, but just before Chernobyl, although I doubt I would have been listened to. And to be honest, I think I'd avoid most other periods of Russian history, particularly if I couldn't get back to this time period. Although at the moment, post-Covid, post-Brexit UK is no joke either. And then finally, we come to a couple of questions from Daniel. Um, Daniel, you just about made it. Well, to be honest, you were late, but I've included them in anyway, so don't worry about it. It's really around Ivan the Terrible, both questions. Um, the first was, why why did I think he formed secret police-like um, institutions? And the second question really is around what his Russian neighbour, Poland, and one of its rulers, Stephen Batory, really thought of him. I think to, to get to the essence of your que first question around the secret police, a lot of countries in Europe, now that feudalism was over, and now that we're coming under more central control, had started to put in place sort of espionage systems or systems for espionage and secret police. I mean, even England was doing this under Elizabeth I. Lots of others were too. So I don't think there's anything abnormal in what happened under Ivan the Terrible and the, the secret police. But Ivan just went that step further because he was so completely paranoid. And I, I actually agree that Stephen Batory, the ruler of, or the ruler for some of the time that Ivan the Terrible was in charge of Russia, was right to point out that Russia wasn't just going about expanding and fighting everybody clearly because it wanted to. It was also, I think you mentioned the demonic, demonic nature of Ivan, which perhaps is a bit strong. I mean, you're right. There's no countries in this time period that were squeaky clean. But again, I think it was Ivan's reputation and I think it was his paranoia. Okay, that was a long episode. So we're going to leave it there. Uh, thanks again, everybody, for sending your questions in. Uh, really appreciated it. Next time, which is going to be in two weeks' time, uh, we'll be starting that Peter the Great miniseries. So until then, take care, and I'll speak to you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.